My guest today on Mission Impact is Danielle Marshall. Danielle and I talk about why it's so important for groups to be clear about their why on pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion, both at the group and the organ or the organizational level, as well as the individual level. How organizations can work both at the systems level of policy change and the service level and have that work complement each other. And why applying an equity lens to your work help in, helps integrate DEI work beyond a standalone training series. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Well, welcome. Welcome, Danielle. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Carol. So I'd like to start out with this question. What drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you and what would you describe as your why? Yeah, it's funny that you start with the question, what is my why? Because I definitely want to talk about that today as well. Uh, you know, I think I have been engaged in this work before I knew there was a term for it. Uh, so I come from the world of nonprofits, spent over 20 years working in a variety of nonprofits, usually uh, youth serving organizations. And I worked around the country in a variety of different states from DC to New York, Maryland, Louisiana, um, even Was you know, Washington, DC, so forth. And there was something that was happening that I found to be very interesting because I am serving youth and particularly with a focus on black and brown youth. Uh, I kept hearing this really persistent narrative about who these children were, uh, what their outcomes in life would be, and then potentially like, you know, even who their families were. And the narrative was not a positive one. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm working on the ground with these individuals. I see them every day. I see how hard their families are, you know, striving to provide for them and, and help uplift them um, as the next generation. And I realized pretty early on, it isn't the actual families uh, that are the problems here, right? It's, it's something systemic that's leading to particular outcomes. And that's where I began to shift my thinking around addressing the systems piece. Now, my background is in industrial organizational psychology, uh, which is a fancy way of saying I tend to look at the whole world as a case study, right? And so I'm looking <laughs> at these systems, I'm looking at people's behaviors, in the moment and I'm really working to figure out again how do I use my strategy knowledge to create a space where we can start addressing these systems themselves as opposed to looking at people as if they were the deficit so that's sort of the genesis of how I got to the place that I am now uh, but in 2020 there really was this emphasis and and I started my business a month before George Floyd's murder I had been on this path already. I knew it was time. What I didn't anticipate, though, was the outcry 
um, from the community that came in I just mass numbers. Um, and so I really was beginning to now target specifically organizations that were interested in moving beyond this performative, we care about DEI, we care about racial equity, to groups that actually wanted to do something that was tangible, measurable, and resulted in change. And in thinking about those organizations that really want to move beyond just, you know, making a statement or maybe having a training and kind of checking the box, um, what do you see them doing differently than, than that kind of surface approach to um, equity and inclusion? Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question. It, what feels like is at the heart of it is these groups. Um, so just going back to the question you asked me in the beginning, what's my why? They're clear on their why. They know why they are leaning into this work. And that why allows them to set, again, very clear goals to get there, right? So if it, it is happening for a variety of reasons, you know, people can approach their why from the, it's the business case for our organization. You know, some of them are thinking about the bottom line for their organization. They're thinking about diverse workforces, et cetera. Uh, some of them are thinking about values this aligns with my moral values. This is what I want to see in the world. And others are thinking about it from an inter or intrapersonal level. And so what does this mean to me as an individual? Um, and so, you know, what does it mean for the quality of relationships that I am seeking to have with people, the changes I want to see in the world? But then even sometimes it is on that, that um, outward sort of facing way, I, I'd like a promotion. And in order to get a promotion in my organization, I need to have skills that are going to allow me to connect with as many people as possible from diverse backgrounds. Uh, and so I would say their why being clear feels like a really amazing starting place uh, in the grand scheme of things, because once we have that why in place, now we can talk about the next step, which is the what do we want to do? You know, what changes do we want to see if we're talking about equity? What does equity even mean in our organization? What should we be looking for? And then, and only then, can we get to the how. Most yeah, because I feel like most most groups they want to move to the um, they skip over that why phase. Yes, that and or um, between the different whys, it might become we have to choose one or the other, right? We have to choose working at the system level or working at the individual level where, you know, they all interrelate. Yeah, I, oh my goodness, I feel so strongly about that because there are, you know, two, it feels like distinct schools of thought that people approach this work from. So, you know, they, they'll talk about the organization as if it was alive, a living, breathing entity. And I'm forever telling people like the organization is a brick and mortar building. It is not alive. The people within the organization are alive. And there's nothing wrong with having strong goals for the organization. We actually need them. Uh, but for me, this feels like a both end moment because you can enact policies. Uh, you can go and do an equity review, make changes that are going to mandate, if you will, DEI at the organizational level. But again, if there is no personal connection to that on the individual level, if I don't have a personal why or even a belief in an organizational why, as soon as there's a, a change in leadership, maybe the budget decreases, it causes policies to falter. So you have put the right sets of things in place, but there's no commitment to completing them. And so I think that we, we can't necessarily just say, 
hey, I want to work on the individuals and I just want to change hearts and minds, or I just want to work on the policies within the organizations. My approach, again, is both and, and it's really a blending of those two worlds. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of the the youth work that you were doing and that that the discrepancy between the narrative that you heard and your experience of folks, of uh, their families, and then thinking about the systems. And I feel like people have often in the nonprofit sector put those two things at a, at a um, kind of an either or of, well, you know, don't just work on the direct service, move up the, you know, move back the chain of events to work on the systems. And again, it's, um, to me, I feel like that's a, that's an unhelpful um, argument to kind of be stuck in of both needs to be dealt with. Um, for, for change to yeah. happen. Like people have immediate needs and um, working with individuals, but also uh, thinking about those bigger systems. Absolutely. Uh, I just was with a client earlier today and one of the activities we were focused on was uh, something around opposite thinking. You know, so I, I can't do both of these things at one time, right? So what's the opposite of that? Both the community that we serve and the systems need to be addressed. So we're, we're tackling it from that perspective. But then the third piece of that is asking if that is to be true, what are the things that need to happen in order for us to be able to address both? So instead of like stopping immediately with this, either it is going to be right or it's going to be left that we're moving, there's so much space in between, right? Where's our middle ground where we can begin to really think about multiple things um, at one time and hold them both as true. Yes, the community needs services. Uh, there are deficits that may be there today, existing needs that they have. And we also need to be able to say, we are driving some of those problems in those communities because of the systems that we have that are faulty. Yeah, because I feel like if you think about the whole nonprofit sector as a whole, and I mean, not, not the entire sector, because, um, but uh, much of it, in essence, is set up to address these needs that don't necessarily need to be needs, right? Like, <laughs> that's like a triple negative. But, um, you know, if we didn't have a system that caused homelessness, we wouldn't need homeless shelters, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think about it at the at the kind of bigger picture level of like, why is our nonprofit sector so big? Yeah, I, oh my gosh, I struggle with that so much because I, I have a heart for nonprofits. I probably always will. Um, and oftentimes it still feels like we're putting a Band-Aid on a much bigger problem. And so I have to say that, you know, where there are cases of homelessness, where there are cases of food insecurity or uh lower literacy rates. Absolutely. These communities need supports right now that are going to help them achieve better outcomes, no doubt. And we will continue to kick the can down the road if we don't get at the underlying systems that are, as you mentioned, like they're really driving this. And so yeah, that's the absolutely. place that I feel like we, we have to focus a little bit more at uh, attention and time, but yet not take our foot off the gas when it comes to also being able to support people simultaneously. Right, right. How do you see, Do you can you give me some examples of, of places where you've seen folks be able to do that both and? I mean, I, I think some people are doing it every day. They don't necessarily stop to think about it. Um, 
you know, if, if I'm working with a group that is dealing with food insecurities and they're also trying to tackle, let's say, racial equity systems, they're not stopping the feeding of people, right? That work continues, but they are allocating time to sit down as a team to review the policies, to begin to look at data, you know, who works in this organization? What's our retention rate based on the disaggregated data? You know, are there certain demographics that are promoted at higher rates who are uh, maybe leaving the organization uh, or even hired into the organization at that point? So they're doing both sets of things. And I by no means would say it is easy because it is an intentional carving out of time. But the people that are able to hold those two things as truthful and important in the moment, those are the groups that I see having the most success. So what are some of those steps that you see organizations taking to kind of move things along and, and shift their cultures? Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna go back to uh, 2020 for a second because I feel like so many things shifted at this point. And I, I will absolutely say there have been people doing this work and committed to it for longer than I've even been around, right, on this planet. Sure. Um, but what felt like shifted in that moment to me is in 2020, it sounded like people really got for the first time that, hey, we need to sit and talk about this. We need to be able to uh, understand that we are not all seeing the world similarly. We are not all having the same experiences. Uh, there is this really interesting thing in the U.S. where we you know, we're, we're the melting pot, everybody's supposed to blend together, therefore we all have to be the same. I don't even know if I agree first off with, matter of fact, I can say pretty clearly, I don't agree with the fact that we should all be <laughs> the same. Um, but beyond that, it was never true to begin with, right? There are different cultures, there are values, there are different beliefs that people uh, bring to the table. There's just simply different understandings of the world. And to not look at that is sort of a detriment to us because, yes, we may have gone through the same situation, but how we experienced it is vastly different. You know, so we, we've all gone through this period of COVID right now. Uh, and depending on who you were, so did you live in a urban environment? Did you live in a more rural environment? Did you have... Um, a stable job, or were you one of the first people to go on furlough or lose your job, right? Like these are going to force different outcomes. Were you someone who didn't have a choice but to go into work? And so as we look at it, yes, again, we all went through the same period and still continue to go through it, but how it's impacting us is very different. And so when people say, well, it's, it's as simple as you just need to go apply for jobs. I did it, it was easy for me. Great, I'm glad that you had that experience for the next person, they may have put in 50 resumes, but because their name is uh, an ethnic sounding name, they're never even called in for the first interview. We're having different experiences. And so I think in watching people begin to realize that it was the first time, at least in my lifetime, that I saw so many people saying like, hey, I, I want to understand this on a deeper level. I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. And for many people, I think they they made some great strides. It feels like there's a pulling back right now that is happening for many folks. I mean, I don't know if you see that in your work as well, uh, but it seems like the attention given to it felt like it was right for that moment. We were all home. We were watching TV on a loop. Uh, we could see all the devastation occurring across not only our nation, but across the world. So it felt primed to dig deeper into some root causes. 
But as things have begun to open back up, and I, I don't say this from a pessimistic standpoint either, um, but more so from a reality check, like we need to be able to continue to sit in these conversations so that it's not just talking about it. And I'm not just talking about, hey, I'm learning something new. But what is the strategy that I'm now going to use because I have invested in this knowledge? You can have a ton of information at the ready, but if you're not doing anything with it, you're, you're also part of the problem. Yeah, and I think there was, for certainly for white people um, who delve into this, there was a huge like remedial education, essentially, that we had to go through uh, to catch up and, and get a lot of perspective. And then, um, but then again, as you're saying, how to, how to actually put that, um, you know, the stack of books that I've read over the last whatever number of years, and then put it into action. Um, is a different thing. Can you can you give me some examples of um, organizations where you see them being able to integrate it, uh, and and it's becoming more of a way of thinking or more of a culture um, than you know we went we had these conversations we did these trainings. Yeah, one of the things that I have um, found to be incredibly helpful uh, within organizations, and I see them normalizing this into their practices, are groups that are using an equity lens when it's time to make decisions. So those decisions could be, uh, you know, where we choose to hold our conference uh, this year. Is it going to be in person? Is it going to be virtual? It could be a decision around a particular policy. Now that we're returning to, you know, the world reopening, what's our, our telework policy? Right. And so to apply an equity lens means we're asking some pretty fundamental questions around, you know, like what are the assumptions that we're bringing to this issue? Are we ensuring that multiple voices are heard and included in this discussion? Um, and not just from the standpoint of like collecting feedback, but that we're actually listening to the dynamics that are emerging for people. Uh, you know, we want to think about again, like what are those outcomes that we are not necessarily predicting they might be potential outcomes there's always someone in one group who is like sort of the negative nancy they're the naysayer and they're like but wait but this thing might happen and our tendency is when that person speaks up we're like oh nancy be, please be quiet like we you know we don't need this right now we need to move the project ahead but i actually think that person at times can be a real asset for us because what they're doing is they're poking holes in the plan as a whole yes but they're helping us uncover things that we may have a potential blind spot towards. Um, and so being able to listen at least to, hey, you know what, that might be something that could occur. Here's what we now can plan for because we're aware this may be a potential barrier that we come up against. Though, you know, Things like that feel like they are really helpful for me. And it's a simple strategy. There are a variety of equity lenses that exist out there. But nonetheless, like if I am thinking about my policy, if I'm thinking about a decision, I can now start thinking about, again, who my stakeholders are, how this decision will impact them. Um, if I'm collecting feedback from a broader group, right? So we, we often do this, especially in the nonprofit sector. I want to know everything that you've experienced. Are you satisfied with our program? Um, are, you know, are the kids reading at a higher level, did we plant more trees, whatever it happens to be. We ask all of these questions. And then where does the data go? Right? It, sometimes it literally sits on someone's shelf in the old days or now, you know, in the cloud somewhere. But we're not using it effectively. And I really have a problem with that because it, it almost feels a little disrespectful, quite frankly, that you've asked me in a very transactional way, 
to give you my insight on something, unpaid, right, free labor, and now you're not even going to tell me what you've done with it, and sometimes you haven't done anything with it. So, you know, when I think about that, like these are tools that we can use if I want to have partnerships that are transformational, it means that there's a constant dialogue going on between us where it is less about the transaction, you provide your feedback, you provide this resource for me and I go about my business. But like, how do I take that in partnership with you and grow it to the next level? Like based on the feedback that you offered, here are the things that we've done differently. Here are the changes on the horizon. Like people are not necessarily asking for ev everything to be different like today, but they would like to know where you're headed. So that's one, I think, solid example of where I'm seeing people make a difference is by intentionally using equity lenses, uh, building those into staff meetings, into leadership team meetings, like on a regular basis. Um, I often tell my, my clients like, you know, hey, post it above your desk, right? It should be, whether it's a bulletin board, some people have it as screensavers, like you should know these questions well enough that at any given time, even if you're not looking at it, you should be able to say like, hey, what are those assumptions we're making right now? Like, am, do I have bias in my thinking? Like, how do I test that assumption? Yeah, and I think we can start with the uh, assumption that we always have some bias. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. But I love, I love, because I, I feel like I've heard that term bandied around a lot, equity lens, but like, what is it practically? And it, the thing that you're describing seems so you know, grounded of, okay, here's a, let a, a set of questions that we're asking about each major decision and how it's impacting folks. Um, and I also really appreciate the, um, the point you make around uh, all the data that uh, nonprofits tend to collect and how the assumptions have been built in to that process in the past that one have kind of assumed a I don't know, complete access to folks and, and their willingness to just show up and, and provide input and, and uh, pro provide perspectives, but also, you know, forgetting to close that loop of, you know, how are you, you, you've taken the information in, how are you sharing it back out? I mean, I'm in the midst of a strategic planning process right now. And I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, I know I've mentioned this to the client. We've got to make sure that we do some type of feedback that goes back out to everybody that we've asked information from, um, not just board and staff, which is the typical mm -hmm. uh, group that will hear those findings, but who are all the people that you've asked uh, for input and, and how are they going to see what was said, what are some themes and, and how it's gonna be actually used um, in the work that the organization's doing at that moment and the purpose that it collected the information. Absolutely. And like, can you see- and Yeah, if it's only for funders, that's not the right audience. Oftentimes that's who we're focused on, right? The funder said, we have to deliver a report in one year's time and therefore I'm gonna collect feedback on it. And you know, I don't want to belittle nonprofits because I think there are some really amazing groups out there that are taking that feedback and they are sharing it with their teams to strengthen their program quality. I see that every day. But what is that further step, right, to go back to your partners in the community and say, you know, we really appreciated this. Here are some of the changes. And or, you know, we got some initial feedback from you. And we're still really noodling on this. We're not sure what's next. You know, would you like to be a co-creator in, you know, the next steps of this process? Because that that's the other thing that really concerns me sometimes is that we believe um, 
as nonprofit leaders that we have the answers to whatever ails the community. And we often don't go back to the community itself and say, you know, what do you need? Years ago, I worked at a nonprofit um, that built playgrounds. And I remember going to a community meeting and we had given the kids an opportunity actually to say like, hey, here is some of the design elements we, we want in our playground. And if you've been on a playground lately or sometime in your life, they have these really cool tool, tubes where kids can climb through them. And we were talking to the parents after the kids said, we want one of these climbing tubes. And the parents said, absolutely not. Now, you know, I'm, I'm early professional. I'm in my, my 20s at the time. And I'm wondering, like, what is the big deal about this, you know, this too? Why are the parents putting up such resistance? The question in that moment, though, was not so much about what they were saying, but tell me more. What is the context? What is the why behind that? Well, as we begun to dig deeper, we understood that the families didn't want the tubes only for one reason. When people crawled through them, they couldn't see what was happening within that tube. And this was a community where there were, you know, some, uh, they were experiencing homelessness. Um, there was some drug abuse. You know, there, there are things that are happening. And they said, for us to feel comfortable with our kids playing in this space, we need to just be able to put eyes on them. Right. And as soon as we said we have a tube that has a glass bubble or a plastic bubble, they were like, oh, that's great. So, you know, we're jumping to conclusions about what the community needs at times without actually asking them, what is of value to you? And tell, you know, tell me more about it. What is going to make this possible for you? Because in terms of the resistance they put up, they had every right to put up that resistance. That was a safety issue for them. As soon sure. as we understood it, the dynamics were completely different. They're like, great, we've solved that problem. Let's talk about some other stuff now. We love this idea. Yeah, yeah. So, to, and, and, and part of that is just, you know, having the opportunity to slow down a little bit and be able to ask the next question. That is exactly it. You know, and so when we are faced with time pressure, when we're distracted, when we're even tired, which feels like everybody these well, days. Well, it certainly does, <laughs> right? So what does that mean to us in the grand scheme of things? If we're facing this every single day where you go to work and you know that you're, you know, every project you had was due yesterday, uh, there's constant uh, time pressure to get to the next thing. Uh, you're distracted because we're multitasking. If your desktop looks anything like mine, you have like 11 billion tabs open at any given time. There's a lot that can stop us from being able to ask quality questions um, and just sit with people because sometimes just the act of sitting and listening tells you so much about where people are and what their needs are in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I'm when I'm doing meetings with groups now, uh, you know, and it's often virtual um, online, one of the things that I will say at the beginning is, is literally, if you have a ton of tabs open, <laughs> I invite you to close them. <laughs> So you can be in the here and now for this meeting right at this moment. Oh, I love it. So what are some wider trends that you're seeing in the nonprofit sector uh, around these issues? We've talked about some of them, but what are some other ones that you're you're noticing? You talked about a slowdown in terms of kind of interest in the in this uh, work around equity. Um, what other things are you noticing? Yeah, I, I would say, yes, there, there feels like um, there's a slowdown of people. 
But when I say that, I'm, I'm thinking more sort of on a national level, lots of different sectors. Uh, what I am personally experiencing is that the people who are stepping into this moment are more committed than they ever have been before. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, while I would love for everyone to get behind this particular, you know, effort, the reality is not everyone's ready, not everyone desires to. Uh, but what I am seeing is with the people who have made this commitment, there are some things that are shifting. They're understanding they need to, we just talked about time, they need to allocate time in order to uh, really embed this work in their in their staff, their teams, their trainings, their onboarding processes, et cetera, um, how they're interacting with the community. So they're setting aside time for that. They're also setting aside resources. And that's something that in the past, you know, if you ask someone what their DEI budget was, you know, oh, we don't actually have a budget for that. We, we have a budget for professional development or maybe there's a training budget, but that was sort of a catch-all for everything, right? It could have been for Excel. It didn't even matter. They did not have that set aside. And so I think that is useful. The other thing that I'm really seeing um, move forward, and this one can be kind of tricky at times, is I see a lot more boards getting involved. Mm. Right. And and as a governing body, they need to be involved in this work uh, because, again, we can't just be in service to communities because it makes us feel good. How are we actually being of service, meaning helping, as opposed to helping in the way we think is best? Right. Helping that's helpful, not helping that's patronizing. That's exactly it. <laughs> Yeah. So like, how are we driving that forward? Um, And I'm really enjoying, I think, the board work in particular right now, uh, because I have an opportunity to talk to people who this is not something that they've been thinking about, right? They particularly boards tend to be a little bit older, at least they have been in the past, right? Older, white, male, et cetera. And this has not been something that's necessarily on their radar. And so we are challenging a ton of assumptions on a daily basis about how, one, we approach this work. Um, Audre Lorde has a quote that says, the master's tools will not uh, dismantle the master's house, right? The way that we've gotten to the point that we are at today will not be the way that we get to the next phase of our evolution. And so we have to think about, yes, there are some strategies that we have used that feel like they may be tried and true, but what else is out there? What else could we be utilizing. And again, this is where those multiple perspectives come in. And I always want to hear from the community. These are people that live there every day, right? They're raising their families. They work there. You know, they they have homes. They're seeing things that we don't necessarily get to see as the outsiders bringing services in. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, I'm, I'm hearing more uh, conversation around working with boards on um, equity and inclusion issue. And I've definitely seen uh, with different boards that I've worked with that there's often a big gap between kind of where the staff is and where the board is. And then, um, yeah, some, some, and oftentimes some, some resistance um, from older, whiter, maler folks. Uh, to how does this connect to our issue? Not seeing those intersections. Um, And I think uh, that can feel dismissive. And I'm also like curious, like, okay, so how can we like 
maybe I, how can I kind of draw the breadcrumbs from one to the other? You know, this issue that you work on and, and these, these, to me, these issues that permeate everything. But it's not they, they're not necessarily seen that way yeah. from everybody. One of the uh, the things that I utilize a lot with boards is uh, the intercultural development inventory or IDI. Mm. Um, and this is a tool mm. that's been used in nonprofits, corporations, education, government, et cetera. Uh, and what I really appreciate about it is it doesn't tell you who you are, uh, but it does provide based on self-assessment, a snapshot in time of how you relate to similarities and differences when it comes to culture, right? And we can talk about culture in sort of sweeping terms, right? So it might be your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, so forth, right? So like these big groupings of people uh, that we have some type of social identity and connection to. And so as people are starting to think about how they relate to groups that are similar to them uh, versus people that are, are are different from them. Like it's really interesting to see, literally see, I mean, sitting on Zoom calls and I can see people, the light bulb going on in their head. Like I hadn't considered that. So this really feels like that issue of time constantly comes back to the forefront for me because why don't we see certain things? Because we we don't even allow the space for us to explore it. Uh, and that feels really important to me because it's almost like paramount to driving that new car off the lot. You go out, you find your favorite car, you buy this car, you haven't seen anybody and you're like, I'm going to be the first one to have this. You drive it off on your way home, you see 30 cars that look exactly like yours, even the same color, right? And all of a sudden it is there, it is salient, it is right in front of you and you hadn't noticed it before. And to that end, what are we not noticing on a regular basis because it is not something we allow time for. We do not put intentionality behind. So with this, you know, this IDI assessment, it's an opportunity to just really sit there and and one, explore how we're viewing these similarities and differences. But secondary to this, and I think probably the most important, because this connects back to the why. What do you want to do with this information? Like, why does this even matter to you? Right. So if I know that there's a particular group that I may feel a little disconnected to, I don't know them as well as I'd like, but I have a goal. You know, I want to be able to connect my nonprofit services. Right. We want to expand who we're, we're reaching. I've, I've heard a lot of groups recently say like, hey, we may serve the black community, but we're not really and an, an, an Latino community, but we're not doing well with um, reaching out to people in the Asian population. OK, great. I now have a goal in mind. Right. So if I know that, how are increasing my cultural competency is going to actually help get me there? Right. So there's there's this idea for me of like the knowledge building piece. You know, who is it that I want to engage? What do I need to understand about them? So before I come in with my best ideas and like, hey, this is the path forward. What do they need? Do they even want my help? Are they requesting it? Right? Or am I a burden to them because I've brought in this thing that they, it's not actually useful for them? Uh, and then, you know, in building all of this, right, so I may have some motivation, I understand my why, I'm beginning to build a knowledge base about the particular community that I wish to serve in this case. Now I tie this back into strategy. Yeah, you mentioned the IDI, and uh, it really focuses on how people can develop their their personal cultural competence. What are some steps that you see that folks can take once they get a little bit more awareness around, 
you know, how they're interacting with differences or how they're seeing them or not, not seeing them. Yeah, I, I think that very much ties to the stage that they come back uh, at within the IDI. But one thing that I do want to clarify, it is certainly about being able to develop individual cultural competencies, but I also work with a lot of organizations who are, they're basically getting mm. their team aggregated results. And we can say as an organization, here's where we sit. And I'll give you an example. Um, many organizations will come back in uh, the stage of minimization. Um, so if we're in minimization, there is a tendency to seek out similarity. And so people are constantly looking for the ways that we are uh, like one another. Uh, and so, you know, well, of course we all think that. We want to be happy. We want to be healthy. We want to be respected. Great. Seems on the surface like a pretty, you know, safe statement. But it is more nuanced than that. So like as someone is thinking about like organizational work, what does that actually mean? So what does respect mean at the organizational level? And what does respect mean for you, Carol, versus how I view respect? Because that's where I think things get a little tricky. We use words just assuming that everyone is behind the definition. They're seeing it in the same context because, again, we're minimizing, right, differences. Out digging into how we are seeing and or experiencing the world differently. And that matters so much. Um, I can't even put enough emphasis behind that particular point. It matters greatly. Uh, and when we ignore those factors, we end up with people that are unhappy, right? They're disgruntled. I don't feel seen. You're just sort of glossing over this issue that is greatly important to me. I'm not included in your organization. I don't feel a sense of belonging. Um, it also is the very thing that in some cases has organizations pushing people to assimilate to be more like them, right? So we talk about culture fit. You hear this all the time when people are hiring. Oh, we need someone who fits our culture. Let's break that down. What does that mean? Oh, well, they have to be professional. What does it mean to be a professional? And I am by no means saying that we shouldn't have some guardrails that we use within our work. So like, as you define as an organization professional, okay, we're gonna have an understanding of what professional means, but is it one that is inclusive of the team members you presently have? And then also future thinking, is it something that is inclusive of the people you wish to have on your team, right? Like you're never gonna get to the fit if you're not acknowledging, identifying what this means and how we are allowing people to show up as authentic versions of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Within the I've, I've literally had conversations with teams where, you know, the first round of kind of doing, well, what do we want? What are, what do we want as our kind of team values and big words like respect get pulled out, professionalism, you know, whatever it might be. And then you actually take them to the next step of, well, so what does that look like? How does that actually show up? What are the behaviors that are going to, that mean That's respect exactly to you it. and have people say diametrically <laughs> opposing <laughs> things where respect is you never interrupt me. Respect is we can have an engaging conversation where everyone jumps in and we're all talking at once, depending on, because uh, not every culture, yeah. you know, interprets that particular thing, for example, interrupting the same way. Um, and, and I was actually on a call this morning where the whole conversation around, um, you know, being businesslike or professional um, and, and just using that as a catchphrase. But then again, right, you can create those guardrails, but have a conversation about, well, what are the behaviors that we agree mean professional? 
And and which are the behaviors that we're using without sort of we're using unconsciously to right. keep people who are different out. That I think that for me feels like probably, you know, one of the hardest conversations to have with people because they don't want to admit it. But it's there, it's present, right? So we, if we carry these biases with us, but we just use a word like professionalism as a catch-all, it allows us to continue to be biased without ever having to have this conversation about what professionalism Yeah, and I think beyond also, like. I'm thinking about this right now, like, just beyond the behaviors, it's also like what's actually necessary for the work. Uh, I mean, I think that whole that's yes. being reexamined across um, job descriptions, qualifications, requirements, you know, the need to have yeah. versus the nice to have. Like, does everyone actually have to have a bachelor's degree, et cetera, et cetera. So reexamining all those assumptions. Yeah. Absolutely. I, you make me think about a position description I had years ago that one of the criteria for qualifications is must be able to lift 50 pounds. Okay, that would be great if I had a job where I needed to lift 50 pounds worth of anything. I sat at the desk all day. Right. <laughs> what am I lifting? <laughs> like in all honesty, <laughs> but here's the, the other thing about it. If we're moving towards this place where we wanna be equitable, we wanna be inclusive, what you're saying to me is if I am not a able-bodied person who can, if needed, lift this 50 pounds, then I shouldn't even bother to apply for this job. It's not said explicitly like that, but that's certainly the undertone of it when it was not actually anything that I needed to be concerned about because I had a desk job. And what are the accommodations we're willing to make for people? They're like, oh, we're, we're totally open to making accommodations. Great, but your language presented a barrier before this person even applied for the job because if I read that and I'm especially as a woman because you know women have a tendency to look at it and they're like oh I don't meet these qualifications whereas men are like oh I'm going to apply anyway women will pull back from it but if I'm reading that and saying hey you know what I, I can lift 25 can't mm -hmm. do 50 this this isn't the job for me and it's a silly example but yet it's not silly because there are so many things embedded in position descriptions along those lines yeah, yeah. that you just miss so really digging into what 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 is actually required for this job, what is actually embedded. Yeah. So I'd love thank you so much. This has been such a rich conversation. And I'm just going to shift gears a little bit here at the end. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. At the end of each episode, I play a game where I ask you uh, one random icebreaker question. And um, for listeners, if you've been listening to all these icebreaker questions, these are great ones to think about starting meetings with um, to help get to know groups better. Um, but when, when you talked about your journey to the work that you're doing now, uh, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> When I was younger, uh, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. All right. How? Why? What What brought you to that path? <laughs> my, my mother told me I was Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, she, she did. She had expectations for me. She thought I was going to move into something medical related. Um, and 
I tease her like, so my background now is in psychology. So I'm like, I am sort of a, a medical person, but not quite. Um, I was like, I focus on the organization side, but it wasn't necessarily my dream. Fast forward a couple of years, I thought I was going into television. And that was really the job that I thought I was going to have and I was going to love um, until I had an internship okay. in television. And I said, you know, this isn't the particular path for me because what I knew even in college is I needed to be sitting in service, um, uplifting others, giving, you know, giving support to people who are learning sometimes to use their verse, their voice for the first time. Like that is my space mm. to be in. Um, I am a introverted person who has a extroverted personality when you put me in front of an audience. Like I love to engage people and just really help bring out threads of wisdom that were always there for them, but like that they can do something meaningful with them. Awesome. So what are you excited about? What's coming up, up next for you? What's emerging in the work that you're doing? Mm, that's a good question. I'm just fresh off of vacation. So I'm thinking about that. Uh, you know, I think what is emerging for me right now that feels incredibly important is, is this leaning into cultural competency. So we talked a little bit about that already, but like if you understand that there is a goal ahead of you, again, whether it is to diversify your board, if it is to be more inclusive of a variety of vendors, like I don't even care what your goal is. Like, how do we begin to shift the mindset? How do we institutionalize these practices in organizations? And I'm really trying to work a lot more, I think, with organizational mindsets on that because the policy review, the use of the equity lens, those are simply, those are tools. Those are things that we can do there. You know, I want to get to a place where you don't need to look at the tool anymore. I want you to just be able to think naturally like, hey, you know, someone's voice and perspective was not included here. Here are the places that I know that I am being biased. Here's how I'm going to move differently. So like those are the spaces I think I am really excited about moving into with the organizations I'm supporting. But more importantly, you know, once we have this strategy on the table, how are you implementing it? Because I hear a lot of folks talk a good game. They may have even, there's so many people out here right now doing DEI plans, racial equity plans. How are you creating a feedback loop to say, hey, this worked really well? Or you know what? We missed the mark with this. We left something, someone, you know, a perspective out of this. How do we incorporate that learning back in so that the next time that we do this, we emerge even smarter, stronger, better positioned to do this work than we uh, we're in when we got started. And so I think those are the things that excite me because when I think about what stops people from continuing this work, it's often the fear of I'm going to get it wrong. Guess what? You are, right? You're human. That is what we do. We mess up royally all the time. The question is, are you committed enough to get it wrong, pick yourself back up and do it again? Because for us to achieve a world that is equitable, that is inclusive, where people really feel like they belong, authentically belong, we're going to misstep sometimes. But getting back up and continuing to try, continuing to advance this work is the only way we will ever see like that level of success. Yeah, and building that in, as you're saying, to the mindset of how do we learn from mistakes? At an individual yes. level and, and normalizing that. Normalizing that we will make mistakes. The project won't go forward perfectly. All of these different things. How are we? How are we taking again taking the time to stop and think and and consider 
you know, what did we learn from that experience? Yeah. And being willing to admit that there isn't one Mm. right way to do things, right? There are a multitude of of perspectives and ways that we can begin to embark on this. Are all of them going to work? Probably not. But can we at least hear them out before we say, oh, you know, that's not going to be the the path for us. Or we've done it this way as long as I can remember. So that's the way we're going to stick to it. I want to figure out what could be how we might approach this. Um, that really, if, if there is one thing that excites me, it is the mm. how might we. All right. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you so much. It was great having this conversation. I really appreciated um, all of your perspectives. And uh, I'm going to hope that you send me at least one link to an uh, equity lens so I can put that in the show notes for people as a tool. Because um, I think, you know, as when groups are getting started, it is helpful to have a couple concrete things. And then like, as you said, once you use it over and over again, then it becomes, it, it just, you know, becomes infused to how you, how you see things. Absolutely. Carol, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. I've loved having this conversation. I appreciated Danielle's point about doing a better job of listening to the negative Nancy's in your organization. Instead of seeing resistance as something to just overcome, slow down and listening to your colleagues. What can you learn from their perspective and what blind spots are they helping reveal? I also appreciated our conversation about an equity lens. I've heard people use this term for quite a while, but was not necessarily sure what they meant or how to implement this and integrate it from a concrete point of view. Danielle literally shared a document that is her equity lens, a set of key questions to consider each time you're engaging in a new initiative or policy or process update or vision. These questions help you and your group think through the the equity implications of any proposed action. Whose voices will be included? How will the input be gathered? Will the change favor one group over another? You can find a link to Danielle's Equity Lens resource in the show notes. And in addition to using this type of tool, Danielle went on further to point out that it is really about shifting organizational mindsets and having equity integrated into everything the organization is doing, having it really embedded in the culture versus something we happen to be working on this year. Building in feedback loops for learning is a key way to work towards that integration. And that's the end goal, an equitable culture. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Danielle, her full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coasters of 100 Ninjas for her production support. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your favorite social media platform and tag us. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out. Just a note about the next episode, I am going on vacation, so we're going to have a slight pause in releasing podcast episodes. We normally release an episode every two weeks, And there will be a longer gap between episodes. In the meantime, and until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.